You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal, nuclear energy, natural gas, hydro, solar power, wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For February 3rd, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Most people who are aware of climate science know that methane, the simplest type of natural gas, has a much more powerful warming effect than carbon dioxide. The often cited estimate is that methane has 20 times as much warming potential as carbon dioxide, although, as we discussed with Sarah Harris in episode 48, as part of our climate science miniseries, those numbers can get pretty squirrely. What we don't really know is how much methane we are releasing into the atmosphere and exactly where it's coming from. There are some sources we know quite a lot about where the literature is extensive, like the methane released from agricultural activities and the burping of cows. Yes, that's right. Although you may have heard that cow farts are the main source of methane, it's actually cow burps that are the main contributor. But there are other sources that we don't know that much about. For example, there has been a wide range of estimates in the literature about methane released from oil and gas production, either intentionally or unintentionally. And we haven't ever really put together a clear picture of all the methane leakage from the gas system. The whole network of pipes and compressors and tanks and other equipment that delivers gas from a natural gas well to the point where it is actually consumed in a building. Until now. Global Energy Monitor, an independent nonprofit organization that researches energy and climate issues, has recently released the results of its latest project called the Gas Index. It looks at methane leakage attributable to natural gas in 71 cities across the U.S., using both extensive literature review and original modeling to attribute the sources of gas leaks. And its results are pretty startling. The gas index found that, on average across all sectors, the methane leakage rates in U.S. cities is 72% higher than a commonly accepted estimate from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA. It estimates much higher methane leakage from all parts of cities' gas systems, including distribution pipelines, customer gas meters, and leakage from appliances within buildings. In today's conversation, we'll speak with two contributors to the gas index, Mason Inman and Emily Grubert. Mason led the study, and yes, you may remember him from our discussion about his biography of M. King Hubbard way back in episode 10. Emily is an assistant professor of civil and environmental engineering at the Georgia Institute of Technology. They're both highly knowledgeable experts on the gas system, and I'm very pleased that they're willing to take the time to share the results of their new study with our listeners. We'll explore exactly where the gas leaks are and what can be done about each type of leak. And we'll consider some of the policies that could help reduce leakage from the gas system as a whole. And then we'll ask whether continuing to use gas in buildings is even compatible with the challenge of addressing climate change. 
Then in the news segment, we'll have a look at the IEA's new methane report. We'll expand on the story about why the French government has intervened in a planned U.S. gas export facility. We'll note a new IEFA analysis suggesting that Asian countries may not continue to invest in gas plants and other projects. We'll check out the largest U.S. offshore wind contract to date, and we'll hail the withdrawal of an oil major from the U.S. oil and gas lobbying group over its climate and energy transition policies. And now, our conversation with Mason Inman and Emily Grubert, recorded January 13th, 2021. So let's bring them into the conversation now. Welcome back, Mason, and welcome, Emily, to the Energy Transition Show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So today we're going to talk about the new report that you've done for Global Energy Monitor titled The Gas Index, which looks at methane leakage attributable to natural gas use in 71 cities across the U.S. Now, there have been many studies on methane leakage, but your press release says that this report is the first of its kind. So what's new about this study? And maybe you could also tell us a little bit about the project team and when you started the study. Sure. So I'm sure most of your listeners know that natural gas is mostly composed of methane and that it's a greenhouse gas with much more powerful warming effects than carbon dioxide. So that all means that whenever there's gas that leaks from the system, that leakage significantly increases the climate impacts from burning gas anywhere, like in homes or businesses. And so one of the big motivations for this study is that Various cities across the country have already enacted or are considering enacting restrictions on the use of gas in buildings. So, for example, in November, the San Francisco Board of Supervisors voted to ban gas connections in all new buildings. And so we wanted to provide cities with more granular information regarding the emissions from the whole supply chain from the gas they burn. So this includes where they get their gas from, how far it has to travel to reach each city, and also the properties of the gas system within each city. So all of these factors contribute to the methane leakage within each city. So this is the first study, as far as we're aware, that's provided granular estimates like this for life cycle methane leakage for a large number of cities. And it's also the first, as far as we're aware, that's drawn together recent assessments of leakage that's occurring within cities, including leakage that occurs within buildings, what's known as behind the meter leakage, which show that cities' gas systems are leaking much more than had been thought. One of the things that I'm really excited about as an academic who looks at methane leakage and sustainability assessment, carbon footprints, that sort of thing, is that this study is, I think, one of the first ones that really looks at methane leakage from a consumer perspective rather than from a producer perspective. What I mean by that is, historically, we've spent a lot of time looking at methane leakage coming from oil and gas fields, from pipelines and things like that, really kind of focusing on maybe regulatory targets like producers or like pipeline operators. What this study does is really get into a full supply chain kind of analysis that contextualizes leakage in the context of the real decisions that people are making about natural gas use as consumers rather than just having a general idea of what the system is doing. So the fact that this really not only kind of incorporates a lot of the spatial variability that we haven't really probed that closely, but also puts this in context of the kind of day-to-day decisions that people are making about appliances and such, I think is a major contribution here. So this study also has some features that we believe are improvements over what had been done in previous studies. So some previous life cycle analyses of 
natural gas leakage, had simply attributed all the methane leakage that occurs in oil and gas production areas to the gas that consumers ultimately consume. But that means they're implicitly letting oil and natural gas liquids off the hook, which we think is a mistake. So, for example, this was the case in the high profile assessment that was published in Science in 2018. And so ours handled things differently, attributing some of the methane leakage to gas that consumers use and some to the oil and natural gas liquids. Okay, that's super helpful. So exactly what kind of leakage are we talking about here? What are these sources? Yeah, so the gas index covers all types of methane leakage. So that includes both unintentional releases of methane, which are known as fugitive emissions, as well as purposeful releases of methane, which are known as venting. So an example of fugitive emissions is when there's a hole in a pipeline and gas is just leaking out. It's not on purpose. But an example of venting can be in production areas. Sometimes gas is vented from wells, or there can be pieces of equipment with valves on them that release gas when they build up too much pressure to release that pressure. Gotcha. Okay. So where did you look for the data on this leakage, and and how is the amount of leakage estimated? So yeah, we looked at leakage from end-to-end of the gas system, including production, the long-distance transmission pipelines, distribution pipelines in cities, customer gas meters, and also leakage within buildings. And so we scoured the literature to find all the studies out there that we could that had taken measurements to estimate the scale of the leakage from each of these components. Also, some cities have had some measurements of the total methane leakage and with a portion of that attributed to coming from the city's gas system. And so if there were such measurements for a city that indicated that there was more leakage occurring in the city than estimated by our model, then we also showed in our results a category we called additional leakage. So the model incorporates data from dozens of studies on methane leakage in various steps along the supply chain. And in this way, it evaluates the full life cycle to estimate a gas leakage rate for each city's gas supply. And overall, this new research shows that the Environmental Protection Agency in its greenhouse gas inventory is substantially underestimating the amount of methane leakage that's occurring. Interesting. So just to be super clear then, the approach you took here is basically a literature review. It's not like you went out and made independent new measurements of methane. Yeah, so we didn't make any new measurements. So we were drawing on measurements that had already been made. But then we also synthesized that and did modeling to provide granular estimates for each city. So it draws on the basis of measurements that are in the literature, but then goes beyond that with modeling to provide new estimates for particular cities that weren't out there before. Gotcha. Okay. So what are the headline results? How far off from the EPA estimates are we? So on average, across all sectors, we calculated the methane leakage rate is 72% higher than the EPA's value. Wow. And more leakage occurs in delivering gas to residential and commercial customers than other sectors. So we calculated that the leakage rates for gas supplied to residential and commercial sectors is more than double the EPA value. 
that's wild. So residential and commercial is the main areas that we need to focus on here. Okay. Yeah, and we found these higher values than the EPA in large part because we were drawing on newer, more extensive measurement studies that are out there in the literature, but they haven't been incorporated into the EPA's approach yet. And these studies showed much higher leakage from particular stages in the gas system. So the gas index results also show a wide range of values between cities with the leakage in the most leaky city, Indianapolis, about four times the rate of leakage for the least leaky city, New York City. So our city-by-city results highlight where efforts to fix the gas system can be most effective and also highlights how cities can achieve large emissions cuts by switching homes and other buildings from using gas to using electricity. Very interesting headline results here. So let's dive in a little deeper on that. What were the top cities? I mean, you've already told us that Indianapolis was the one with the most leakage, but what were the others in, say, the top 10? Sure. Yeah. So the 10 cities with the leakiest gas supplies were Indianapolis, as we said, then Los Angeles, California, Phoenix, Arizona, Miami, Florida, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Orlando, Florida, Boston, Massachusetts, Little Rock, Arkansas, Reno, Nevada, and finally Tampa, Florida. So you can see that there's cities all across the country that have high life cycle leakage rates. So it's not a problem just in one specific region or due to gas supplies just coming from one particular place. And so the city with the highest gas leakage rate, Indianapolis, that leakage rate was more than four times higher than the EPA's estimated national average. And the city with the lowest leakage rate in our calculations, New York City, that leakage rate was about the same as EPA's estimated rate. So what we're finding is pretty much everywhere is worse than what the EPA had estimated and some cities much, much worse. Right. So the EPA's estimate is down at the lower bound for these cities that you looked at. Do you have any idea why the leakage rate was so high in Indianapolis? So, yeah, it's a bit of a mystery, but I'll explain a bit about the situation there. So Indianapolis is one of the cities that's had citywide leakage measurements taken. It's been measured more extensively than most any other city, with the possible exception of Boston. And that's because Indianapolis was chosen to be a testbed for a methane measurement project organized by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so they are working with academics who have taken studies using both flights around the city and from towers that are placed in and around the city. And both methods have found substantial methane leakage that's occurring within the city from the natural gas system. But they aren't able with these methods to attribute the leakage to particular parts of the gas system, for example, to say how much is coming from distribution pipelines or how much from customer gas meters and so on. So that's the mystery is still where exactly these leaks in Indianapolis are coming from. I mean, I have to wonder now if you're finding this way above average leakage rate in Indianapolis, and that's a city that's been extensively studied. (laughs) You know, I have to wonder, like, are there other cities out there that have not been extensively studied where the leakage rates are just as high? 
Yeah, it definitely could be the case. And so one of the big issues in the data that's available is that only a handful of cities have had these kind of citywide measurements taken. So we wanted to use the data where it's available and not just ignore it, but it could be that other cities also have higher leakage than what we're calculating, and we just don't know it yet because we don't have these same kind of citywide measurements. Hmm. Interesting. So where exactly are these leaks occurring? I mean, is it that the pipes themselves are cracked or broken, or is it the fittings where one pipe connects to another, or what? Yeah, so there are all kinds of leaks coming from many pieces of equipment throughout the oil and gas system. So there's leaks from pipelines, as you mentioned, and that can be due to a variety of causes, such as corrosion or damage from construction crews or damage from weather or damage from earthquakes and so on. But not all of the leakage that occurs is from pipelines. So for example, there's the long distance gas transmission system, which involves pipelines, but most of the leakage comes from compressors that keep gas moving along the pipelines rather than coming from, say, little holes in the pipelines themselves. And there's also what they call behind the meter leakage, that can occur from appliances such as furnaces, water heaters, and stoves. So when these turn on or off, they can have a moment when the gas isn't burning, but gas is still being released, and these releases of gas can add up. So there's various ways in which the leaks occur. Gotcha. So when I turn on my gas-fired range and that little piezoelectronic igniter starts going click, 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 but the gas hasn't ignited yet, that's one of the sources we're talking about here. Yeah, it's not the biggest in the whole system, but it's one of them. Huh, interesting. All right, well, looking at the summary results, one of the things that really surprised me is how consistent the leakage was for some parts of the gas system, and then how varying others were. So, for example, in most of the top 10 cities, the leakage rates from gas production and transmission, as well as leakage within buildings, was pretty consistent. I mean, those values were mostly kind of within the same range for each city, with one or two exceptions. Whereas leakage from the gas meters was wildly variable. What's up with that? Yeah, so for cities to wind up near the top of the ranking, they usually have to have high rates of leakage in a number of different categories from a number of different parts of the gas system. So across all the cities, there's a lot of variation in the leakage rate for each particular category. So for example, the leakage from production areas varies about fourfold from the lowest to the highest city. So for production area leakage, we found the lowest rates in Pennsylvania, where most of the gas supplies coming from the Marcellus Shale formation, where the leakage rates there for production are the lowest of any area measured. Whereas in Oklahoma, they're getting gas mostly from production areas that leak at a much, much higher rate. I have to wonder if that isn't partly due to the fact that the Marcellus development is relatively new. You know, that was part of the shale gas revolution from fracking. Whereas in Oklahoma, they've been producing gas for like 100 years. I have to wonder if there isn't some age element to that. Yeah, so it has been found that oftentimes in places with older production, with a lot of conventional wells, 
they're actually leaking at a higher rate, like a higher percentage of the gas that they produce is leaking out. So age does seem to play a factor. Another important factor is how much gas versus oil is being produced in the area. In the Marcellus, it's really gas rich. They produce almost no oil and other liquids. And so the focus is all just on getting gas out. But in some other areas, like in Oklahoma and in Texas, in certain places like the Permian, they produce a lot of oil along with the gas. And the focus is more on getting the oil out. And so there are some wells and other equipment where gas is being produced and it's being flared off. Some of that is not burned and so it's a methane emission. Some of the flares are malfunctioning or, or not even lit and so the gas is just being vented. So there's things like that that can happen that contribute to the methane leakage in areas that are oil rich being higher than in an area that's really gas rich. To piggyback on that a little bit too, I think one of the other things that we see is that because the Marcellus and a couple of other really dry gas production basins where you maybe don't even need to process the gas too much before you can put it in a pipeline, we don't see the same level of leakage that we see in older basins where there's maybe a lot of water coming up with the resource or other types of things like that where you end up having to separate methane out from other fluids. Part of the reason that we see oftentimes lower leakage in some of the newer basins is because the focus on shale and the actual ability to extract things from these tight shales is relatively recent. So some of it is age, some of it, like Mason said, is a distribution across different kinds of co-products. But a lot of the older fields are also correlated with just having a lot more fluid separations that lead to things like tanks where you have methane coming out of water and need to actually work on moving those things into separate containers, essentially. And that provides a lot of opportunity for leakage as well. That's a helpful clarification. And, you know, just for the sake of our listeners who may not know, why don't you go ahead and explain just briefly what dry gas means? Yeah. So in this case, what I'm talking about is really something that looks a lot like the kind of gas that goes straight into a pipeline. There are a lot of different technical definitions and EIA uses some other more field-oriented words, maybe use the same kinds of terms a little bit differently. In this context, what I'm talking about is stuff that's actually pretty much able to go into a pipeline and not create a bunch of corrosion, stuff like that, that you might get if you have water in the gas in particular. A lot of ancient formations basically have some co-production of water along with gas, along with natural gas liquids and oil and stuff like that. So when we say dry, a lot of the historical reason for that terminology is that you don't really need to remove any moisture in many cases. And that moisture could be water, it could be natural gas liquids, it could be oil. Yep. A lot of different stuff going on down there. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, for those listeners who may not really know about much about petroleum, oil and gas are produced from the very same process in the very same place. It's just that gas is cooked a little bit longer or at higher temperatures than oil, essentially. Or at least that's how I think about it. Yeah. Fits with my understanding. Besides the leakage from production areas, other parts of the gas system can have even higher variation from region to region. So for customer gas meters, we drew on a 2019 study by the Gas Technology Institute that found much more leakage than the EPA estimates. So for commercial gas meters, they found six-fold higher leakage nationwide. Hmm. But the study also found large variations in the leakage rates between regions. 
with the highest leakage rate in the southwest region being 38 times higher than the lowest leakage rate in the Pacific region. So the gas index uses those regional values from the study for estimating each city's leakage from gas meters. I mean, a 38 acts difference from region to region. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, (laughs) What are we supposed to make of that? They did look a bit into what could be causing it, and it seems like one contributing factor is different technologies of meters used in different parts of the country or used predominantly. But when I was looking at the results, that didn't seem to explain all of it. And so I don't fully understand, and I'm not sure if it's fully known, why the difference is so large. The study did take quite a number of measurements. I think it was over 500 meters that they measured across the country. So they did their best to try to have a good-sized sample so that it's not just due to random noise or something like that. Hmm. One of the other reasons why we see a lot of variation when we start looking at methane leakage across different types of processes is that leakage isn't necessarily related directly to how much gas is actually being used. So a lot of the time when we see leakage, it's because maybe there's a maintenance issue or maybe somebody left a tank hatch open or maybe there's a valve that was installed a long time ago when we still actually used kind of intentional methane bleeds to provide some services to the facilities. And so I think one of the big challenges in talking about methane leakage is that it's not like a lot of other emissions where there's a really direct correlation between how much gas you're using and how much methane leakage you see associated with that use. So these really, really large points of variability, I think, often stand out to people that are used to thinking about CO2 as kind of a combustion process that's mediated by type of fuel process efficiency, that kind of thing. With methane leakage, it's much more about what specifically is going on at a specific facility at a specific point in time. Some of that's predictable and some of it's something that we can kind of start to understand as activity factors and so on. But a lot of it is really things that we really just need to measure directly. They're not that easy to extrapolate or predict without direct measurements. So the fact that we keep seeing these big changes and inconsistencies in the inventories partially reflects that this isn't something that you can just calculate if you know enough about the system, at least so far. Hmm. So there's actually a great deal of variability from like a very specific place, like a piece of equipment or an address. Yep, absolutely. And for people that are following the methane leakage literature, you may have heard the term super emitter. And one of the things that we see in a lot of studies kind of repeatedly is that a small number of emission sources account for a vastly larger quantity of the overall leakage than we tend to see with other kinds of processes. So a lot of the time it is literally stuff like somebody didn't notice something was wrong for a couple of months. And it's not stuff that's really necessarily inherent to the processes. But because as Mason has mentioned a couple of times, really, we're just talking about a gaseous thing escaping from a bunch of metal in many cases. It's easy to have situations where that happens without necessarily being planned for. And so these kind of accidental releases, in addition to the ones that are a bit more predictable, really do change the profile of leakage and make it pretty difficult, actually, to allocate leakage to specific consumption sources. 
We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or $5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. According to the IEA's 2021 update of its methane tracker, oil and gas operations worldwide emitted about as much methane in 2020 as the total energy-related CO2 emissions of the entire European Union. Methane emissions from the global oil and gas industry fell by an estimated 10% in 2020 as producers reduced output in response to the demand shock of the COVID-19 crisis. But that could easily be reversed as the world recovers from the pandemic. To make an enduring reduction in methane emissions, IEA recommends improving operations and repairing leaks, which they say can pay for themselves by selling the gas that would have otherwise escaped or been flared off. The agency has produced a new report, Driving Down Methane Leaks from the Oil and Gas Industry, a Regulatory Roadmap and Toolkit, which offers a step-by-step guide for improving methane regulation around the world. It's good and much-needed guidance for the global oil and gas industry, I'm sure. However, I will point out that if the economics of capturing gas and selling it were better than leaking and flaring it, the U.S. oil and gas industry would have done it long ago. Instead, we have had an ever-growing problem with gas flaring for decades. In 2018, just the three major basins for gas fracking in the U.S. flared or vented 320 million cubic feet of gas, producing emissions equivalent to the exhaust of about 2 million cars. That's in the neighborhood of a billion dollars worth of gas a year, which was just burned to get rid of it. That's not the kind of thing that the oil and gas industry does if it has a better option. But with the kind of stricter regulation that IEA suggests, perhaps it could be made possible. Item 2. Saying that a planned $7 billion U.S. liquefied natural gas export plant was, quote, not aligned with France's environmental project and environmental vision. The French economic ministry asked Power Group Angie in October to not... Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. 
You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.